This is the State of Things. I'm Frank Stacio, the soon-to-be-retired host of this show, spending the last few days in this role listening back to some of the more memorable conversations we've had over the last 15 years. Today, we meet Cecilia Polanco. She created the food truck So Good Papooses, and she put some of the proceeds to fund a nonprofit that she founded. Papooses for Education provides college scholarships to undocumented students and DACA recipients. In addition to being CEO of So Good Papooses, she was also serving on various boards, including Durham's Racial Equity Task Force. When I look back over the body of work that I have done now that I'm retiring, this is one of the many conversations that lives in my memory. It's moving because Cecilia is reaching back into her own ethnic heritage, even as she points the way forward for new immigrants with stories much like her own family's. I asked her about her parents' life in El Salvador. Yes, in El Salvador, they lived in a little bit outside of a a nearby city called Metapan. And I would describe it as uh, very much like a a village, like out in the the campo. And uh, they grew uh, whatever they ate and uh, they fished at the nearby river. And uh, there was no running water electricity there until I think I was maybe between 10 and 12 when I think that that happened and the road started to get paved and so they lived out in um, in nature and um, you know they they were people of of the campo and they they harvested and planted things and and just made a life there that's where they lived and my dad he he tells me about how he wanted to uh, learn how to do more so he joined the military and that's where he learned a lot of skills learned a lot about life and kind of found some advocacy for himself to see what he wanted to make of himself and and for his family um, and so yeah that that was their life in El Salvador very very close-knit and very traditional and he was an electrician too then he became trained as an electrician as well so yeah. he could do he could do some of that and of course the farming and the gardening continued how did your mom and mother and father meet well, they met there in, yeah. in La Isla, where where uh, my mother lived, and I think just interacting with each other there, they met, and um, you know, he he courted her, and eventually, the tradition there is that once you get together with someone, you leave your home and you go live with them in their home, and so they got together that way. And they were living there, and as you said, things were going pretty well. They had uh, that life, uh, also the life of an electrician, so, you know, pretty comfortable living. Why did they leave? Well, I think that my my parents grew up in, in poverty in, in El Salvador, and there was oftentimes, um, you know, not, e- not enough to go around, but enough for people to, um, to live, and so there was a lot of sharing, a lot of um, stretching out of resources, mm-hmm. but... In uh, where they're where they're from in La Isla, there at the time there wasn't a lot of opportunities for education. And my dad, my parents, having had my my two older sisters and uh, my third sister on the way, uh, he was thinking about what opportunities were there for them uh, to be able to study, and also the civil war that was happening at the time. Uh, my dad, having been in the military before, uh, he was he talks about being recruited. By kind of both sides, yeah. and uh, facing that choice that really he'd whatever choice he he would make, it, it, he'd be someone's enemy, and so he made uh, the tough choice to leave to leave El Salvador uh, for the United States to save enough money to come get my mom and work together to eventually bring my sisters to the United States as well. 
Yeah, they had to come come in stages, right? They didn't all come at once. Mm-hmm. So then he gets to the United States. Now, they arrived without documentation, but ultimately were granted asylum. Yes, yes. And that's the process for seeking asylum. You have to first show up in the United right. States. And so they show up here. They um, apply for asylum. Thankfully, my dad had the wits about him to, to go through that process and to seek um you know, going through that process to be able to have status in the United States, and that program was available at the time. And so my my family was able to uh, be granted asylum and uh, eventually be on the path towards uh, naturalization. Which which has happened. Mm-hmm. So you're naturalized citizens now. And you, of course, were born in, in Los Angeles, but mostly grew up in Durham. Uh, talk about that. Your senior year in high school, you actually received a Moorhead Kane scholarship. But t- tell me a little bit more about growing up in Durham uh, with a family largely from El Salvador. What was that like for you? I loved growing up with a big family, lots of cousins, aunts and uncles in the area, and people... Um, coming here because this is where your family was so um i grew up here in durham durham was is all i all i knew growing up and went through durham public schools so i'm a product of proud product of our durham public schools i went to northern graduated from northern and um as the second person in in my nuclear family to go to college uh, i was really nervous about it really nervous about being able to afford college. And uh, my older sister, Yesenia, went to UNC, and that was my first exposure of what college was like. I would go spend, um, like, spring break with her and sit in her classes, and I wanted to be just like her. And your parents were pretty focused on education for all of you, right? Yes, yes. They they emphasize education for all of us, and uh, we are very fortunate that I, my sisters and I, we we're, we we love learning and we're, we're smart and uh, we're driven women and uh, through our educations and, and now our careers, we're able to uh, build a life for ourselves and, and do what we do more of what we want, have choice in that. And one of the things that came along for you that really helped out was winning that, that very prestigious Moorhead uh, Kane scholarship. Tell us about that and that moment when, when you when they told you you won the scholarship? I still remember. I remember applying. Um, I'm pretty sure I self-nominated. And every part of the process, it's a pretty lengthy process through semifinals and finalist weekend thinking. I remember seeing it at my senior my senior night and thinking, wow, wouldn't that be awesome? And uh, going through the process and, and getting to finals and, and thinking, I'm going to be so heartbroken if I don't get this. But um, uh, eventually receiving the notification that I, w- that I was a Maureen Kane scholar, it, it blew my mind. I, was, I called on my sisters. I, um, I just was so excited. I was so excited. I was at soccer practice, and I was like, I know the email's in my inbox. I'm trying to keep it together. Um, but it really it, it solidified my desire to go to UNC. I was like, that's it. I'm not going anywhere else. And it, it really, it, it set my life on a track that um, I give a lot of credit to where I am now. My, the two scholarships I received, the Maury Kane Scholarship and the Gap Year Fellowship, they just opened the door of opportunities for what was possible for me to do, uh, both at UNC, where I had so many opportunities and resources at my fingertips, and um, coming from a background where our, my family, we were, we were 
we had enough, yeah. um, but money was always a consideration. And so money not being an, an obstacle anymore, that really opened the doors for me to do so much. I am talking with Cecilia Polanco, the owner of So Good Pupusas, today on The State of Things. A lot of opportunities, uh, as you say, opened up. I mean, that to, to remind everybody, that is a full ride plus books, plus living expenses, and then... <clears throat> Uh, summer travel, mm-hmm. right? I yes. mean, it is, a, it is a, and and of course, it's hard to get for because of all those benefits. Uh, and then talk about this gap year because you said that you also won a gap year fellowship. Um, so tell me about the decision to take that gap year, how that played out with your family, and what you did with it. Yes, taking a gap year was not part of my plans. Um, I hadn't heard of a gap year, didn't know anyone who had taken a gap year, but. In my grind, my senior year, I was applying for all sorts of scholarships, and uh, I that one came across. I got an email from UNC, and so I decided to apply, but hadn't really taken it seriously until I got further down the process. And then I thought, okay, if I get this, am I going to do it? And um, when I received this the scholarship, I thought, okay, yeah, I'm going to do this. I don't really know what it means, but. I'm excited about it, and um, getting the scholarship was make or break for me. I, I I let them know that if I didn't get it, I, I there was no way I could self-fund it. And I had such a formative year that I still reflect on. At that time, being 18, just having graduated high school, I decided to start my gap year in Italy, where I had some distant relatives and um, because I, I love pizza, really. That's how I made my decisions at 18. And um, I started there, and I was trying to do volunteer work. That was the premise behind the, the fellowship. And we were part of their first class of fellows. So we were we were really um, like the pioneers of, of the fellowship and what it meant to for this to be a program at a college. And so I started in uh, – I didn't want to go to countries that were developing – and to do sort of the typical what you think service looks like yeah. in other places, um, I thought there is there are issues and poverty and ways to volunteer in the United States. There are in yeah. developing countries as well. So I started in Europe. Um, I, I traveled to Italy, Spain, France, and Sweden. And as it started to get colder there, I wanted to go somewhere warmer. And um, I met... I met a really cute boy from Australia who spoke perfect Spanish and knew what pupusas were. And I was like, wow, he was sent for so, me. So good weather, message. good food, and romance, really, were, were, were driving He this. was the messenger, yes. <laughs> I did end up going to Australia. Not to where he was from, but I found a, a job as an au pair in Australia. So uh, that found that gave me a little bit more stability. I was a little all over the place in, in Europe, doing things from farming, um, volunteering at soup kitchens and churches, and doing more travel. So Australia was a little bit more stable for me. Cecilia Polanco is staying with us. She's CEO of the food truck So Good Pupusas and founder of Pupusas for Education. We'll return to this memorable conversation in a moment on the State of Things from North Carolina Public Radio, a broadcast service of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. This is the State of Things, broadcasting from the American Tobacco Historic District. I'm Frank Stacio. Cecilia Polanco's parents understood the value of education from an early age. There was no high school in the town where they grew up, Civil War drove them out of El Salvador, and when they got to the U.S., school was a high priority for their four daughters. 
Their youngest eventually received the prestigious Moorhead Kane Scholarship to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Cecilia now uses what she learned to help others get an education. She founded the nonprofit Papooses for Education. It provides scholarships for undocumented students and DACA recipients, and it's funded by the food truck she operates called So Good Papooses. It's one of the conversations we're bringing back as I head into retirement. Before the break, we were talking about her travels during the gap year in college. Of course, such adventures can be enriching to the classroom experience, but I did wonder what her parents from the countryside in El Salvador thought of her putting such a promising academic education on hold. Yeah, they were a little confused by it. I think a few people were, uh, because I also didn't have a lot of language to describe what a gap year was Mm -hmm. and uh, why I was doing it. But my parents, they were supportive of it. I think they were a little scared that I was going to be so far away and they weren't going to be able to help me if I needed it. Mm. And sometimes I would call them from Australia, and, and I'm like, it's Saturday morning here. And they're like, it's still Friday night here. How? <laughs> and uh, so I think they were a little a little hesitant about it, but they, they, they got behind me. And I really appreciated that support because it, it, I was going into a lot of uncertainty and a lot of unknowns. So to have their support, their support and the support of my sisters to do it, um, I think is why I was able to take that leap and and get through my gap year. Well, this is interesting because you talked earlier again about your father and the fact that he was going to parlay his military service into a little greater education and to give him more choices. That's the word you used. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if that was part of their thinking, both your mother and your father, that uh, that offering you their daughter's choices, that putting you in a position to make choices was as important as, you know, just getting an education and getting a job. Yes, I think that they trusted that I... The, this gap year was part of my education and part of the choices I was making, and uh, they were like, you know, we're, that doesn't, we don't always get it, we don't always understand, yeah. but we know that you're making good choices. And if it's part of school, they're like, they would often tell people, we're not sure what she's up to, but school has sent her, UNC has sent her, and she's in Australia or wherever I was, and so she, they were supportive of it, and um, they just, you know, kept supporting me about it. Now, I understand your grandmother also played an important part and was a real force in your life. Yes, um, my maternal grandmother, especially I got to spend a lot of time with her growing up and she would take care of of me and my my younger cousins together. And she was really the matriarch of our family, uh, the glue that kept us all together and kept us all united uh, to gather as a family and be there for each other and be involved in each other's lives. So, and what about her, because she spent part of her time here, but she also obviously had an important role or may have had an important role in the community where she grew up and where she lived. Talk about her role there in El Salvador. Yes, my grandmother, Mama Noy, Leonor, she was very well known both in El Salvador and here uh, for, she was just a a, a symbol uh, in the community, someone who you could go to. She had a very strong faith. And so she, she was also a healer. She was also a partera. Um, a midwife, and so people would go to her for sometimes just to talk to her, but and and other other times for the different sorts of things she would do for people. So in her healing ways, she would um, do something called uh, curando de espanto or de susto. And so whenever you go through something that's a little traumatic or, or kind of scares you, especially for children, um, we kind of we consider it like 
sometimes your soul gets scared. You know, there's something deeper inside of you that's happening. And so she could she would sometimes do a cleanse. Uh, the, the most typical one I think people recognize is the one with an egg where they grow over your body with an egg. Um, but she also does, uh, uh, she used to do a recitation of like a, of a, of a chant in your ear and pretty much telling your spirit that everything was okay and that you could come back. She did that to me once. Um, and she would also reposition babies in the in in the in the in the stomach like uh, during pregnancy pregnant women would come and say you know can you just check on the position or maybe they're flipped and she would she would do all that all through the knowledge that she inherited from other healers i wonder how you again if you think about uh, some of these rituals and healing um, um, services that she could provide obviously out of out of their cultural context for you may have seemed seemed peculiar how were you able to navigate all that or did it seem did it seem strange within this cultural context it seemed completely normal yeah. to me like that's yeah. what happened at home yeah. people would come in and out to see her and we'd be like yeah she's here let's go get her and she was always feeding people too so that to me was always normal and the the things we would do um that was always normal for me and so it was it was just part of my culture like it it was part of what was being what being at home was like uh, so yeah, I, I thought of it as completely normal. So how did you now we'll, we'll take you back from Australia. We're, we're back in your gap year. What comes next for you and how did all of that lead to a food truck? I get back from my gap year. Um, I start my first year at Carolina and uh, my first year at Carolina was was difficult. Um, I it was the first time I had a Latina professor and so that really changed. Mm that really did a lot for me. It did a lot for me. And I started learning more about um, myself and my identity and also um, learning about a different narrative about myself, having come from Durham public schools and, and kind of a lower income background. I was used to this narrative of what I, more so of what I didn't have, of being mm. disadvantaged and being lucky to be at UNC. But I started to shift that narrative to uh, being deserving of everything that, of being a Moorhead King Scholar, of being at UNC, um, and also learning to navigate my privileges as well. So it's not just about the disadvantages I had, but one of the privileges being born in the United States, being a U.S. citizen, being eligible for the Moorhead Cane, and for FAFSA, and for a gap year where I had a passport and could travel, starting to look at that more and so since since scholarships had done so much for me with the Morad Kane and the Glo- Global Gap Year Fellowship, scholarships is how I wanted to give back. I, th- I thought I want to do that. And I wanted to focus on undocumented students because although I faced some barriers into college and I struggled, there are still folks and students who um, are just as smart, just as high performing, just as deserving and just because of the status, their status. It, it's not that they have a problem getting into schools. It's all about paying. It's all about that financial barrier that's there. And I don't think that that's right. No, and if you think about it from the other side, when the, if, if our state you know, uh, has the expense and it's a good one to make in public education, that's always a wise investment. And when you make the investment in human beings and have 12 years of good, solid education which correlates well with productivity and all the things a state wants out of a citizen, might make sense if they're eligible for college to help them the rest of the way. Yes, it's a huge talent loss. I think there are so many smart and talented individuals that 
we are missing out on because our policies put up these barriers that that don't make sense. They don't they don't make sense on a lot of levels. And so to your point, they are human beings. They're students. They're students who've been fighting to do everything right, everything their counselors and their teachers told them to do. And and now they're we you know, they're kind of left hanging with this dream of, hey, if you do, if you work hard, you can get it. And that's not, it's not true. It's not fully true for them. So we can understand now your vision, your commitment, food truck, pupusas. What's the connection? So in order to give scholarships, you need money. And um, I didn't have any money to give anybody. So I thought, um, you know, if we, it'd been a running joke in our family that, that our mom's food is so good and, you know, pupusas are special because we only had them on special occasions and, and it was a way to share ourselves and our culture with other people. So that, that running joke came into this idea that, you know, we could, we could do it. We could sell mom's food. We could sell pupusas and a food truck. Loncheras have been part of Latinx culture, Hispanic culture for for decades here in North Carolina. I've grown up with food trucks, but they weren't as trendy uh, because it was Latinos serving the Latino community. Mm-hmm. Now we see food trucks, ex- the trend is exploding and there's like hundreds of, of food trucks in the area now. But that's how we started thinking about how we could generate some funds. And uh, having autonomy over those funds meant that we could do whatever we want with them. So we could donate it to uh, go to undocumented students for scholarships, and we'd be right. We'd be within our right to do so. Talk about pupusas too, because we don't have—I don't think—as large a Salvadoran population here as there are in other parts of the country. I know when I spent a lot of time in Washington D.C., pupusas were a very common uh, fare, and we could mm-hmm. find them everywhere. A very large Salvadoran population, but not so not so large here in the Triangle in North Carolina. Yes, in the Triangle, uh, the primary population is Mexican. And so I grew up with a lot of Mexican influences as well. Um, and a few places that sold pupusas, like El Cuscatleco. Um, I remember always wanting to go there to get pupusas. Um, so, yeah, there's not as many Salvadorians here. And pupusas aren't a household word yet. So yet. maybe you should tell us what they are for yes. those of us who haven't had them. Yes. So pupusas, they're traditional Salvadoran food. You can get them Anywhere, anytime in El Salvador, breakfast, lunch, dinner, and they're uh, a thick tortilla with the filling inside. Our most, the ones that we always have on the truck, are pork and cheese and bean and cheese, and they come with the toppings: uh, curtido, which is pickled cabbage and carrots, and the salsa. Typically for us, it's not spicy, but since we have a lot, a, a lot of um, Mexicans in the area and, and different tastes, they're like, well, you know, don't discriminate against us. We need some spicy salsa, too. <laughs> so we started making some spicy salsa for um, for people who enjoy that. But you said it's interesting because at first you said these are on special occasions. This is the this is that would be the Salvadoran variation on the Italian ravioli or the Polish pierogi. Mm-hmm. They're the world over variations on this. Salvadoran version, you said was served on special occasions, but then you said, you know, and and, and everywhere you go, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Mm-hmm. Are they are they here for special occasions? Yeah, I see. I here, see. so when we would prepare, we would only have them on mm-hmm. special occasions. So now, the, you mom makes great food. Hey, we could make a living at this. I've got a mission. Yeah, let's do it. And then you remember, oh, but wait, I don't know how to make them. Is that uh, right? Yeah, I. <laughs> 
I do that a lot. I jump <laughs> into things. Um, and I think that's a, that fearlessness yeah. I get from my family. And then having taken a gap year, I was like, I can handle whatever comes my way. Um, but yeah, I, I, and I also didn't know very much about running a business or a mm-hmm. food truck. I, I had a huge learning curve I had, I experienced in the beginning because no, I, I couldn't make pupusas and it was almost like a re-education. Um, yes, I had a bachelor's, but I couldn't make pupusas. So, you know, where's the value in that? And so I had to put in the work to learn the tradition of, of, um, of El Salvador from my mother, um, traditions that she learned from her mother, my grandmother. And so doing that was very special. It was really special for me to learn how to do that. And, and it affirmed my Salvadorianness. And I was really proud and, and glad that my mom, like my parents are proud of me for going to school and doing what I do. But they're, they're really proud of me for, for accomplishing what I've done so far with the food truck and learning how to make pupusas. Because you are successful now, and I, but I wonder in that moment when you've done these, all right, you win this great scholarship, you go to UNC, then there's the gap year. So they, they take a moment and say, okay, let's trust her and do that. Now she wants to make pupusas. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Why not law? Why not medicine? I mean, was there yeah. a moment when they thought, we love the fact that you're honoring our tradition, but, you know, what's wrong mm-hmm. with you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I, they were always like, what is she up to? I oh. was always coming home with these ideas and plans, and uh, it didn't always make sense, but they kind of, they were like, okay, she needs help, so let's help her, but also, what? Like, why? <laughs> yeah. um, well, what was it like to be back? I mean, I, I'm assuming that if, how, how quickly did you learn? Was it difficult for you? And if it was difficult to learn some of these techniques... How hard is that if you've accomplished all these great things and now I have to go back to to being lousy at something? Well, I mean, I'm lousy at plenty. And <laughs> I think I think that that is, it keeps me humble. Um, yeah. And I love learning. So I, I love going through the process of learning how to do it. Yeah. And I learned from my, from my mom. I learned from my sisters. I learned from my aunts. Everyone was now a teacher at this, at this new skill. Um, it was definitely hard at first. It took a while because I was learning every part of the part of the process, how to prepare the filling, how to form the pupusa itself, how to uh, how to cook them. Like at first, I couldn't even distinguish them. I couldn't tell a, a, a pork pupusa from a bean pupusa and I couldn't flip them. And I, I burned a batch of beans and I did it. I've, I tell my mom, like, mom, I've been through everything. I've messed up in all the ways. So I know all the solutions now. I've had all the experiences and she's been really supportive. Even times where I thought she was going to be mad at me for burning stuff. She she was like, you know, it happened to you once. It won't happen again. And I was like, OK, no, you know, I'm, I'm not getting fussed out this time. So it was a, definitely a process. But and it took the time. So I, I was really patient with myself, but I, I knew that it was going to be worth it. I am talking with the owner of So Good Pupusa, Cecilia Polanco, today on The State of Things. Now, you mentioned this this other learning curve that you're going to have to, you know, sort of ride, and that is learning how to become a businesswoman. Talk about, you know, sort of starting the business, buying the truck, and getting going. Well, I, I had many great examples, my sisters being a few, and also my um, in my family, my aunt, um, Tia Vicky, um, and she... She's um, she passed away a few years ago, but when she was here, she was uh, super involved, um, super involved with me, helping me all the time, teaching me, and she 
she taught me that there is a solution to every problem. And so she was just nothing, no obstacle stopped her. She was like, oh, this is the problem. This is how we're going to deal with it. And just watching her do that, her entrepreneurial spirit and her determination um, to get things going, I was like, okay, it takes a lot of work. And I've watched my family work really hard to to salir adelante, to, to get ahead, mm. you know, to here in the United States. So I was like, I'll, I'm willing to put in the work. I'll put in the work to learn. I'll put in the work and, and be patient. And I know I can get there that way. So I was like, I just it's going to take time. It's going to take time. But you're also, learn. now you're going to balance these social justice <clears throat> goals, if I may call them social justice goals, with, the, with business. And anybody can understand people who come from very little materially into a place where they can work hard, make a good living, and, you know, and make a lot of money. But then when you have to compromise some of that profit or take some of that profit out of the business, um, that becomes a whole new animal. How did you learn or have you learned uh, to, to balance those things? I've learned through example um, and then transforming that to be relevant in in social entrepreneurship. But I watched my parents and my family do a lot with what they had. And there was always enough. It was always enough. And it wasn't about getting more or, or gathering more or, or, or holding more. It was about how do we make sure that we have enough and that anyone who needs, who comes to our, our, our house is, is fed and anyone that we can extend a hand to in some way we support, even though, you know, we're still working. We're still working to maintain and, and to, to continue to salir adelante. And so I, I learned from them that you don't have to have a lot. Is just having is mm. something. Having is is having enough to share, and that is a blessing in itself. Like it, we're thankful that we haven't that we have to share. We have anything to share. Mm. So in sharing that, um, I I learned okay, you know, as I can, if I have two pupusas, I can feed. You know, I can eat, and somebody else can eat. Mm. And so, I've applied that to the social mission uh, of of the business. By re- being being cognizant that I had the privilege to do things at my own pace and build it in from the beginning, and so building that model is easier because it's it's how we've done it from this from the start. So we didn't get to profitable or or make it and then look back and say, hey, how do we switch this up? Mm. Uh, we started we built it in from the beginning so that we say, how do we make this work? based on the values that we have and the outcomes we want to see without um, focusing just on profit. Profit is important. Profit is what make, keeps right. us running, and profit is how we fund those scholarships. But how we get there matters, too. Cecilia Polanco is the CEO of So Good Papooses and the founder of Papooses for Education. This conversation is one of the many we pulled from the archive on my farewell tour, and there's more just ahead. Stay tuned. This is The State of Things. I'm Frank Stacio talking with Cecilia Polanco today, the CEO of the Durham food truck So Good Papooses. Her family arrived in the U.S. after fleeing the Salvadoran Civil War. The United States was involved in that conflict during the Carter and Reagan administrations, providing funding and training to the Salvadoran government's death squads. Cecilia's food truck funds a nonprofit that provides scholarships for undocumented students and DACA recipients. We're listening back to my 2019 conversation with her today as part of my look back over my time as host of The State of Things. 
I began the last segment by asking about the challenge of applying her social justice standards to a competitive business. It's been hard. It still is hard uh, to build in what we, the business, we, the type of business we want to be. Uh, we do want to get to the point where we're able to hire people part time, full time, and a living wage. And I think it's good to have those goals from the beginning and a strategy to get there. Yeah. Uh, very early on, very quickly, we we adopted uh, compostables and recyclables on the truck, and hopefully one day I can put solar panels on my truck. Mm-hmm. And that is that is a, a business choice, and those choices cost money. And so uh, profit is also a choice. How much profit? Mm-hmm and where that money goes to, where you reinvest it. Um, and so I found that it's it's harder. It costs more money to build it in from the beginning, but it's how you can get it right. Yeah. And it's I think it's harder to do things a certain way or more cost-effective and then try to turn around and say, all right, now how do we build in some of the things that matter. Well, I mean, that's the thing. If you don't have some line in your budget that's putting away a little bit for those solar panels every month, then you will never have enough to buy them, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that's the point. And I think your point is, is well taken about building it in and then, you know, having to deal with the fact that you're not there yet. You're not, you haven't accomplished every one of those goals from the start, but you've got a plan that reasonably might get you there. So how does it work now, the foundation and the scholarships? How, tell, tell us a little bit, you know, give us the mechanics of that. The business started as a means to an end to fund and sustain the scholarships because we really wanted them to be sustainable and not just fundraising. And if we don't raise the funds, we don't give the scholarships. So the food truck... It operates like a business, and it it makes it makes the money. It sells the pupusas, and then um, money gets donated to pupusas for education. And there, it is managed um, and distributed by a team of students at UNC and um, and our board. And so that's how we've done it. We've we started with the goal of giving uh, one to two scholarships a year um, to students who come from Wake, Durham, and Orange counties to do anything that they wanted post grad, whether it's post graduating high school, whether it's community college or barber school, cosmetology, a four year university, just for them to continue and to continue to support them in pursuing how, higher ed. How much of that education would it cover? A thousand dollars, a thousand dollars a year. Which ends up being like five hundred dollars a semester, mm. and that's not a lot of money. That's not a lot of money. Mm. It's uh, f- especially for an undocumented student uh, paying out of state tuition, mm. um, even at a community college. It's it helps, but it's not. Mm. It doesn't cover everything. And so we we're we're trying to fill this this last dollar gap that students have um, to be able to attend. So we're trying to get the ones that are almost there mm. to getting there. We can't do so much for students who have like $20,000 gaps. And oftentimes, and that's what a lot of students are facing. Okay, we have, you get a partial scholarship or you get some combination of scholarships, but the rest you have to raise privately or personally, fund personally. And that's just not, it's not doable. And so it's, and that ends up, students end up facing these large gaps for school and then they realize they can't go and it's, it's um it's tragic. So what are your plans now? Are you going to grow this, both the foundation, the food truck business? <clears throat> yes, I would I would love to grow the amount of scholarships um that we're giving, the amount that we're giving, and I th- I think we were going to try to build that up along the way, but also make sure that we're doing right by the students that 
um, we've got now and providing them support that's a little more comprehensive. So we don't just cut them a check and say, good luck. Mm. We follow up with them. We help connect them with internships. So we're like their own personal posse. We're trying to support them all along the way. And um, I'm hoping that I, I've got plans for both the nonprofit and the business. And on the business side, uh, f- this year we're, we're having the National Pupusa Day, which is the first time we do this. And I think it's the first time in, in maybe this region of the South that it's that it's done. And so I'm super excited about that and bringing some of the, I like to call them like the OGs of pupusas from the area, El Cuscatleco, La Metapaneca, that have been here for a long time um, because I'm really up and coming in this scene. And so... We're hoping to have, we're excited about that, and um, we're really working on our second truck, our community food truck, and eventually we'll pilot this, and then both of the trucks will be part of this uh, collective of of food trucks, of of businesses, of small businesses, uh, to try to get people an an avenue, a platform to sell their food, to cater, um, without having to do it all from scratch like I did. I mean, I it, it was doable. It took a lot. It took a lot of money. It took a lot of time and, and hard work. And But I think that people face a lot of barriers to be able to do that. And if we can help people launch their businesses, I it, I don't see it as competition. I think I, I see it as, as fostering this economic development mm-hmm. for our community so that we can just, we can just live our lives. We can, we can, um, is you know have livelihood. Tell us more about the community food truck. Is that going to look different or be organized any differently than your first truck? It um, it will look very similar uh, aesthetically, um, but I'm working with the health department on what this is going to look like because it's it, it we haven't done it before. So they're like, hmm, let's really think through this and what the liabilities are going to be. So I'm working with the health department there and a great uh, team of, of, of folks who um, some people from uh, some MBA students from Duke um, and some some community organizations and other um, women and um, small business owners to see what this should look like. Well, what what's the idea behind it? The idea is that we gather together as a collective. We bring together our small businesses and, and incubate other mm. people who want to start. And um, we will share our know-how on catering. Mm. And then you can sell your food straight to the public on the food trucks, mm. on both food trucks, hopefully, eventually. And so we just got to figure out the model for how to do that um, and researching other models that exist or, or transforming other models mm. that exist. But trying to find a way that, that you know, I can, I can essentially... Um, step away from my food trucks, but they're still being put to good use by other people and making money for them and also making money for me, building building my wealth and building other people's wealth so that we can we can sell food and, and do something that we love and also live, you know, our lives yeah. with dignity. Well, and generate economic economic development as well as you pointed out and, uh, and generate these businesses. Mm-hmm. All of this you have found, and I find this very interesting that you, uh, that you wanted to talk about this, that it comes at a cost and that is your own mental health. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, I think that there's, everyone faces difficult situations. Uh, everyone struggles in different ways. There's healthy amounts of fear and anxiety that we all have and worry that kind of keep us on track. Um, but over time, I, I realized, I started to pay more attention to how it was affecting me and realizing that I probably, I needed, I needed some help. I needed some help um, 
managing my mental health and how I was feeling and starting to be able to name some of the things that were going on and figuring out how to navigate that, whether it was with different techniques to to cope and to improve my mental health or um, to see what other things I needed, um, so what kind of support I needed. And I'm, I'm very grateful to El Futuro here in Durham uh, that, that was that place to go for me to get that support, that that help, so that I could talk to a therapist and kind of sort through some things and, and what things are weighing on me and challenging and challenging me. And, and it's it's been it's been the difference between differentiating, okay, what do my good days look like and what do my bad days look like? And how to what extent is this just normal sort of you know, wear and tear. I'm tired from my day. I'm stressed from, you know, all this business I, I'm grateful for. But also, how are some days just, I can't do anything. and I, Or I can't get out of bed. Or I, I have no energy, no motivation. And to what point is that something that is a normal part of processing and going through life? And at what point does it become something that is almost debilitating? And so... Through this process of therapy that I started earlier this year, I've been learning a lot about myself and what what this what the conditions look like, so that I can name things, recognize things, and also um, spend some time reflecting with myself over what's going on in my mind. You know, how do I? I make myself a little extra nervous about things and anxious about mm-hmm. things that I know I've got. Like I sometimes before a big event, it's normal to be excited and a little anxious. But at what point do my thoughts get to the point where like this is going to go horribly wrong? We haven't prepared enough. And those aren't true. So I, I'm, I've, I was faced with a little like internal battle of uh, with my anxiety um, and have been learning to manage it better and kind of believe believe the good thoughts and not pay so much attention to the bad ones. That anxiety obviously can be uncomfortable. Were you at a point where you began to worry that it was going to threaten, that it was actually threatening everything? I think that's part of why I uh, decided to go get help is because I I found that it was affecting, I think the the long term of what it takes to get a business off the ground and really build all of this that long term the long term effects are that it it really started to weigh on my mental health and so i as much as i could go 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 there's only an you know there's only so much that you can do that and so it it doesn't make sense to drive myself into the ground trying to get this all done um and it did start to affect my business and and i'm really thankful to our customers and to the people that work with us because I've met some kind and understanding people when I make mistakes. I still make mistakes. I'm still learning to be a small business owner and to do my best. And people have just been so understanding. I've been so grateful for that because sometimes whether it's communicating emails or delivery times or it could be anything could go wrong and it all has gone wrong. And I've that's all been part of me being me and navigating being a small business owner who has anxiety, um, who deals with depression and kind of figuring out how to show up as best I can every day to work and every day to my youth group and, and, and different spaces that I, that I'm a part of how to really show up 
as best I can and, and people be uh, affirming and grateful for that. I'm talking with the owner of So Good Papooses, Cecilia Polanco, today on The State of Things. When you explain it, it sounds like the most natural thing in the world. You're, you're, you're feeling, you're experiencing these symptoms. They're becoming something of a threat. You seek help. But in the larger picture, you've painted a picture of someone who has uh, obviously relied on family and friends and is grateful for the help of family and friends, but you have achieved a lot. And sometimes people in that position with that kind of personality and character find it difficult to say, I can't do everything. Hold on. Was that a tough moment for you to come to the uh, ask for help? I think so. I think so. Because at first it's like, well, okay, I need to get it together. Hmm. You know, I'm acting up. I need to get it together. Uh, but I think that it, it got to the point where it it affected me so much that I thought this isn't me. This isn't hmm. like my, my my thoughts. I was like, this isn't how I think. I'm really optimistic and positive and and I'll take the I'll take the failures and, and look for lessons. But um, especially from from dealing with those situations, I was like, no, there's something more here. Hmm. Um, and thinking I've been to therapy before when I was in college, and I think I waited till I, till it was almost well. I waited till there was a crisis, mm. and I think that that's what we, uh, our inclination to do is is kind of like, well, let's get through this, let's find ways to cope, um, and we won't seek ask for help until it's until we're in a crisis. Yeah. And um, I was trying to get a little bit ahead of that, and thought, okay, I I know that I'm struggling, I know that I need some help. Um, and I, I want to be, I want to feel like I used to when I could accomplish a lot and feel good and had energy and could socialize. Um, but now seeing that I was struggling with things that I didn't used to struggle with, Mm -hmm. you know, then I was like, okay, it's time to see what else is here beyond what I understand or what I know. And now you're ready to take on the next challenge. I understand that you might be moving away from the truck business, you yourself to continue your education, right? Yes, my goal um, is to go back to school, to go to grad school. I, I've i been thinking a lot about leadership lately. Um, and also, I was, I was thinking if I go back, I might go back for a master's in public administration so I can have a skill set that could serve me in, in a couple of different areas and help me. I think through that process, I'd figure out how to, what my next steps are. I've thought a lot about um, running for office. I, I ran for the school board uh, here in Durham right after I graduated college. And that was kind of me putting myself back out there. And I think that's not something easy for me to do. Um, given my personality, I'm a little bit of an introvert, um, especially now with this new reality of of my mental health and taking care of that, uh, being really careful and strategic about how I go about things I get involved with. Cecilia Polanco, right now the CEO of So Good Papooses, the founder of Papooses for Education, and also serves on the board of Durham's Racial Equity Task Force, the Gap Year Association, and Latinx Ed, and who knows what else in the future. (laughs) What a great pleasure. Thank you so much for talking with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. We spoke with Cecilia Polanco originally in October of 2019. You can catch more of these conversations from the State of Things every Tuesday and Thursday at noon through the end of this year. And you can find out more about the show at our website, stateofthings.org. North Carolina Public Radio is a broadcast service of the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. I'm Frank Stacio.